Well, good morning, everyone. And welcome to our uh, remembrance service here today at Belhelvy Church, and a special welcome. If you're visiting with us today, uh, you're most welcome, and we hope you're able to stay and join us for a coffee or a tea after the service. Uh, as is the way of things, we have been having a wee bit of technical trouble this morning. I think we're good to go, but please bear with us if we do have some problems as we go through. Uh, hopefully, we'll be, we'll be fine. Uh, just a few announcements uh, before we begin our service. Um, just to remind you that uh, next Saturday, 19th of November, um, we have our Christmas fair in the Forsyth Hall from 10 to 12, and you're all very welcome to come. Um, just a reminder that the, uh, we don't have the facility to pay by card at the, the fair, so uh, do come along uh, laden with cash uh, to get all your uh, Christmas presents bought in advance. There's some lovely stalls there. So that's next Saturday at 10 to 12 in the Forsyth Hall. And the Kirk Club are looking for donations of uh, chocolate for the chocolate stalls. So if you see Tricia or Daphne or you want to bring something along on Friday night when they're setting up, they would be greatly received, as would uh, donations for the raffle as well. Um, just to say that there will be a retiral offering for Poppy Scotland after the service today. Um, please do donate as you can as we leave the church. And we will be leaving by the main doors today. We've been in the habit in COVID of leaving through the side door. But today we'll leave through the main doors at the front of the church. And I would ask you please to move through that area, move through the vestibule and out into the fresh air uh, as quickly as you can, please, because COVID is still with us, sadly. And lastly, just a wee reminder to please switch off your mobile phones uh, for the duration of the service, or at least um, put them on silent. In times of peace and in times of war, God, you are our constant. In the noise and in the silence, you are our comfort. When all is change and we fear to lose our way, you are our compass. Ever faithful God, we worship you. And we worship God in the words of our opening hymn, uh, number 161, O God, our help in ages past. Let's worship God together.
Please be seated. Let's come before God in prayer now. Let us pray. God of help, God of truth, God of justice, God of love. We come before you this day in wonder, in community, and in remembrance. Into a world torn apart by violence, by greed, by despair, you breathe peace, plenty, and hope. We join together today seeking your grace, your presence, and your guidance as we try to navigate our world and our lives which seem to be full of challenges and problems that we do not have easy answers to. Give us the boldness to persevere. Give us the strength to continue. Give us the resolve to work within the world we have to make it better for all. As Jesus taught his disciples to see the world as it is, to accept the pain that will come but to remember that God remains steadfast. Be our constant support and strength, our guiding light in every darkness, our hope in every despair, and the one who will welcome us home when the day is done. Lord, we join together today conscious of our faults, our failures, and our regrets. And we thank you that you love us as we are, but love us too much to let us stay that way. And so we thank you for your forgiveness and your love, given now and always, which give us the confidence and the resolve to pray in Jesus' name, using the words that he taught his disciples, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Word of welcome to our youth organisations. It's really good to see you along today, folks. We've missed you uh, in the church uh, over the last few years with COVID. It's great to see you all uh, back again. And what we're going to be doing very shortly is to keep a time of quiet for what's called the two minutes silence. And in that time, we remember all the people who died in the terrible wars of last century so that you and I could live in freedom and in peace. And I know that you'll do your very best be quiet and to be respectful in that time. We meet here this morning in the presence of God, joining with men and women across the world in marking today as a day of remembrance for those who lost their lives in war. We remember with sorrow those whose lives were taken away in world wars and in conflicts past and present many from our own parish. We remember all who in bereavement, disability and pain continue to suffer the fallout of war long after the fighting has ceased. We remember those who even today are caught up in war, 
soldiers and civilians. And we commit ourselves to work in penitence and faith for reconciliation between the nations so that all people may be able to live in the freedom, justice and peace that God intends for them. The days are coming, says the prophet, when God shall judge among the nations and shall settle disputes for many peoples. The days are coming when they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But until those days, we shall continue to remember those who have been taken from us by war. So can I ask you now to please stand as you are able to. They shall not grow old as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. We now keep silence together. Please be seated. Let's pray together again. Ever living God, we remember those whom you have gathered from the storm of war into the peace of your presence. May that same peace calm our fears, bring justice to all peoples 
and establish harmony among the nations. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We sing together again now, it's hymn number 706, for the healing of the nations.
Scoutmaster uh, Ian Thompson is now going to do a little talk that he's called Why Remember. Good morning. I wanted to address today the question why I remember. Those we remember today are dead. Most, but not all, died a long time ago. Many of us never met any of them. Of those who died in conflict, generally they are not in our direct family history. Are they not just a name on the memorial outside or somewhere else? So why remember them? Can I have one volunteer, please? Youngster. Up you come. Up you come. Can you tell everybody your name? Evan. Now, Evan, which year were you born? 2014. 2014, so you're at 2015. So, can we put you up on a slide, please? Right, that's you on the slide. Now, you represent all the young people here. So, everyone here, this applies as much to you as it does to Evan. On the way in this morning, some of you were given a bit of paper with a relative printed on it. Now, Evan, you've got a mum and dad, but to represent your mum and dad, we've got somebody who could hold up a bit of paper, mother and father. Okay, so those two people represent your mother and father, and they represent everybody else's mother and father. They were probably born... Okay, thank you. They were probably born in and around the late 70s, 80s. Yeah. Let's show them on the slide too. Now, mum and dad would have had parents. Yes. Your, what were they called? Grandma and papa okay. So you've two grandpas and two grannies. And they're probably born in the 50s, 60s. Can we have them up on the slide as well, please? Now, can the four surrogate grandparents please hold up the bit of paper? So these people represent your grandparents and everybody else's grandparents. And you would have had great grandparents. Now, if you no, but you would have had, because each of your grandparents would have had a mum and dad, and they would have been called great-grandparents. And they were probably born in the 1910s through to 1935. So could I have the great-grandparents please hold up? There's eight of them in total. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Great-great-grandparents, they would have had mums and dads as well, so great-grandparents, how many would there be if you had eight? Sixteen. Sixteen, well done. And they would have been born around about 1880 to 1900. 
or thereabouts. Can the, the great-great-grandparents please hold up the bit of paper? So, 16. Okay, thank you. Now, could everybody that has a note of a relative please stand? If you're able. Now, all these people represent your family line all the way back. 30 in total had to be born, get together with their partners, have children for you to be here. So all these people who represent your great-grandparents and your grandparents all the way. Each generation had to live. Do you agree? Yeah. This is the same for all youngsters here today, whether beavers, cubs, scouts, explorers or others in uniform, or those just here with their parents. For the rest of us, it varies with our age. If one of them died before having children, you wouldn't be here, because you need all these people to have been. Right, can you sit down, please? Thank you. Oh, no, you can stay. <laughs> all your great-great-grandpas they would have been of age to fight in World War I. And each, what's your surname name? Edward Smith. What's your full name? Edward Smith. Smith. So all your, your dad, your grandpa, your great-grandpa, your great-great-grandpa Smith, they, they give you your name. And for your great-great-grandpa Smith to survive, it means you've got his name. Uh, but if he wasn't here, the line would go. It's really random, but one of them uh, is in the trenches. Right? So you imagine your great-great-grandpa was in the trenches, and he was there with his buddy Bert. And one of them gets shot with a sniper. <coughs> but it's not your grandma, it's Bert. Bert was dead. But what if it was your great-great-grandpa that got shot? If he was killed, your grandpa, your great-grandpa, your dad, none of you would exist. Neither would have any of their brothers or sisters, nor aunties or uncles or cousins in any era. They wouldn't exist. This holds true for any one of your eight grand, great great grandfathers. In World War One, your grandpa, great grandpa in World War Two, your grandpa perhaps in the Falklands, or your dad maybe in the Gulf conflict. Next slide. Between 30 and 100 of your relatives are alive because Bert died, and not your great-great-grandpa. In reality, your great-great-great-grandpa, some of them may have fought in World War I, pushing up the number of relatives you have. Next slide. The bullet missed your great-great-grandpa, and his buddy, his buddy Bert sadly died. We are grateful to those 
casualties and survivors alike who fought for our freedoms, fought for our families, fought for us. We must understand the effect of war, the randomness, the futility, the waste, the agony, the sorrow. This is why we remember those who made the ultimate sacrifice with their life. People like Bert. They are not, not, they are not just names on a memorial. They were real people whose lives were cut short by conflict. They were robbed of a future, a future that we enjoy. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. Thanks Ian and thanks Evan for that very graphic reminder um, of the way that we're connected with the generations that gone before us and how fine the margins are that we're even here at all and um, particularly thinking about that today in the context of, of war and remembrance so thank you for that we're going to sing together again now and I think we'll remain seated to sing this one uh, it's a song called make me a channel of your peace <laughs>
Our reading this morning is taken from the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, and reading verses 1 to 11. And Hamish Johnson is going to read this for us. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should not be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, in be being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Thank you. Thanks, Hamish. We're going to take a moment just to watch a, a short video now that gives us a little feel for the role of the royal family, uh, particularly in the Second World War. At the outset of the war, King George VI and Queen Elizabeth decided they would not be seen to be hiding away from the war. In September 1940, five high explosive bombs were dropped on Buckingham Palace. Rather than move away from the danger, the King and Queen decided to remain at the palace in solidarity with those living through the Blitz. The Queen is reported to have said, I am glad we have been bombed. Now we can look the East End in the eye. The King and Queen made many visits to areas that had been bombed during the Blitz, as well as to serving personnel, to munitions factories, to RAF bases and Royal Naval ships, and to troops training for combat. They wanted to keep people's spirits up and took on the role of boosting morale with fervour. When war broke out, Elizabeth and Margaret were evacuated to Windsor Castle, as it was felt to be safer than Buckingham Palace in London. And there they were kept safe from the bombing, and they also had an allotment as part of the National Dig for Victory campaign. She saw the work her parents were doing to boost people's morale, and she learned from that the importance of duty during times of national crisis. There's great approval for them not sending the two princesses away to Canada. They've stayed in Britain and they're sticking it out with everybody else, and that is really, really helpful for his individual popularity, but also for the monarchy as an institution. Mary visited bombed-out Sheffield, Manchester, Leeds, and Coventry. George made frequent visits to the East End. And the king, a protective father, would allow his 14-year-old firstborn to make her very first broadcast to evacuees. In wishing you all good evening, I feel that I am speaking to friends and companions. Thousands of you in this country have had to leave your homes and be separated from your fathers and mothers. My sister and I feel so much for you. 
it was a huge morale boost. And Bertie would have absolutely loved it. He'd been so proud of her. Bertie, George, and Mary all kept their children in Britain, rather than send them to North America to safety, as many aristocratic families had done. In 1945, Life magazine published an article about Princess Elizabeth. It reported that King George VI had ruled that Elizabeth's training as a princess outweighed the nation's increasing manpower problems, and that Betts should not join any of the women's auxiliaries, nor work in a factory. But the king would not get his way. In April 1944, the young princess had turned 18. Her teenage years had been against the backdrop of the Second World War. Elizabeth was determined to do her bit for the war effort, as so many of her peers were. She enrolled on a driving and vehicle maintenance course. Her classes included mechanics theory and map reading, and she learned how to service, maintain, and drive heavy army vehicles at the ATS number one mechanical transport training center. The princess was treated the same as the rest of her company during their training, and was able to mix with young people from different backgrounds. This was quite unusual for the time, and there was great press interest in seeing the young heir to the throne during her military training. Photographers captured her dressed in overalls and working on vehicle engines and changing tires. And the press even named her Princess Auto Mechanic. ATS drivers have also got to do their own repairs and servicing every type of army vehicle is an important part of the training. Throughout her training, Princess Elizabeth worked for seven hours a day, but she didn't stay in the barracks on site. She would return to Windsor Castle each evening. After five months of training as a mechanic and military truck driver in Camberley, the future Queen was promoted to the rank of Honorary Junior Commander. The King and Queen and Princess Margaret visited Princess Elizabeth during her time at the training camp and watched her in action. The Princess commented to Life magazine that she never knew there was quite so much advanced preparation for a royal visit, saying, I'll know another time. On VE Day, the 8th of May, 1945, Princess Elizabeth joined her parents and sister on the balcony of Buckingham Palace, along with the Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, to greet the huge cheering crowds that had gathered there to celebrate the end of the war in Europe. Later on that day, the young princess was allowed to leave the palace and mingle with the crowds anonymously. She later spoke about this when she was queen, saying it was one of the most memorable nights of her life. She said, I remember we were terrified of being recognised. I remember lines of unknown people linking arms and walking down Whitehall. All of us just swept along on a tide of happiness and relief. Princess Elizabeth was naturally quite serious and responsible, even when she was young. And the war years really strengthened that aspect of her personality and provided the foundation of her later attitude towards duty when she became queen. Although the Second World War ended in 1945, restrictions in Britain continued and the royal family followed suit. Rationing did not end until 1954, and Princess Elizabeth even saved up ration coupons to buy the material for her wedding dress in 1947. Just seven years after the end of the war, Elizabeth became queen. This experience of coming of age during a war would play a pivotal role in shaping how she reigned and who she is. She formed a relationship with Winston Churchill over these years, who would later be her first Prime Minister when Queen, and she learned from her father the importance of a monarch being visible and present during times of national crisis. Given Queen Elizabeth's passing back in early September, it seemed like a good time to look back a little at how the royal family 
and especially Her Late Majesty uh, coped with the crisis of the Second World War and those video clips from the Imperial War Museum and the Smithsonian Institute were a real help in building up a picture of how they chose to respond. It would have been easy, given the status of the royal family, to argue that they should have been wrapped in cotton wool for the good of the realm, but it was for the good of the realm that they pretty much chose to do the opposite. They realised that in the face of war, it was more important than ever that they were identifying with the struggles of their people and they couldn't do that while keeping themselves insulated from everything that was going on. So King George and Queen Elizabeth stayed in Buckingham Palace despite it being bombed nine times during the war and although the princesses were moved to Windsor Castle there was no question of them being shipped overseas. The royal family visited bomb sites and factories to offer encouragement and, as we heard today, broadcast messages of support to the nation. Despite her dad's reservations, Princess Elizabeth insisted on joining the ATS and training as a mechanic, mucking in with all of the other trainees. Some of you, if you've seen the film The Queen with Helen Mirren, might remember the part where she's driving her Range Rover through a stream near Balmoral and something breaks under the car and she calls one of the gillies back at Balmoral Castle to get help and she says, oh, I think the prop shaft's gone. And when he queries that diagnosis, she smiles and she says, I'm pretty sure it's the prop shaft. Don't forget, I trained as a mechanic during the war. And when victory finally came in 1945 and all the balcony waving was done, it's well known that the two princesses took themselves off to enjoy the revelry in London that night with, along with everyone else even if they had to do their best to try and stay incognito. And who would have thought that when it came to her wedding a couple of years later, our future queen would have to be saving up her ration coupons to get the material that was needed for her dress. Lovely stories, I think, of the way that the royal family took their duties to their people very seriously in those difficult days and did all they could to identify with them. And their example has given me pause for thought this past week. I've struggled a bit to put words together for today, if I'm honest. My heart has felt strangely heavy over the last wee while, and I don't think I'm alone in that. I learned a new word a couple of weeks ago, one that's just made its way into the Oxford English Dictionary. It's the word permacrisis. Permacrisis made up from permanent and crisis. And even after you filter out all the media hype, it's hard to deny that we're living in something of a permacrisis, a time of immense uncertainty and change on almost every front, locally and internationally. First of all, we had years of wrangling over Brexit, then a global pandemic and all its consequences. Now we have soaring prices, chaos in our own political system, a national church that's undergoing a very painful restructuring process, not to mention ongoing war in Europe that's already cost tens of thousands of lives, many of them civilians. Now we can turn the news off and try to keep it all at arm's length, but that doesn't change the reality of how things are. It's a pretty ugly world that we're living in just now. And that's before you take into account the individual sadnesses and burdens that 
all of us have to carry in life. What gets you through, I wonder? How can we be in the midst of these times without either pretending the pain away or allowing it to completely overwhelm us? Well, the men whose names are written on our war memorial might be able to help us today. They lived in far worse times than these. And it's well known that many a man went to his fate in the skies, on the sea, or in the trenches with a loved one's photograph before his eyes or next to his heart, remembering why he was fighting and had to get back home. Remembering that however he felt in those moments, he was loved and he wasn't alone. In the film Shadowlands, C.S. Lewis says, we read to know that we're not alone. And I think there's a lot of truth in that, but I think it's also true that many of us pray and worship to know that we're not alone as well. We'll soon be into Advent, the season where we remember Christ's incarnation, God coming to us in human form. And for me, that's always been one of the most precious truths of the Christian faith that God would stoop down to bear our image and show us in flesh and blood and smiles and tears and meals and conversations that we are not alone, that he is with us always in life and in death. I can't put a price in what it means to know that and to be convinced of it in your heart. To know that God isn't distant, and has been where you've been and felt what you've felt and struggled in the ways that you've struggled is an amazing thing. And it doesn't lessen his glory. If anything, it magnifies it. Because what does it say about God's humility that he would choose to limit himself in that way just so we could know him better? That's why I've always loved those words that we heard earlier from Philippians. Paul says that Jesus was in very nature God, yet did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This morning we've remembered the ways in which the royal family went the extra mile so they could identify with their people during the war years, staying in London when it would have been easier to have relocated Encouraging people with their presence and with their broadcasts, getting alongside folk and being real with them, rejoicing with them when the fighting had finished. We remember the way they did their duty with gratitude, but we remember too the greater king who stooped far lower to identify with his people, the one who made himself nothing to redeem and restore us.
and to let us know beyond all doubt that he is on our side and that whatever the circumstances we're facing, we are not alone. Amen. I'm going to invite Gillian to come up now and lead us in our prayers for others. And as we pray, Gillian is going to use a short response. When she says, Father in heaven, the response is, give them your peace. Father in heaven, give them your peace. Let us pray. Eternal God, on this day especially, we remember the servicemen and women who have died in the violence of war. Each, of, each one of them remembered and known by you. Father in heaven, give them your peace. We pray for those who love them in death as in life, those who still carry pain in body and spirit after long years. Father in heaven, give them your peace. We pray for all members of the armed forces who are in danger this very day, remembering their family, their friends, and all who pray for their safe return. Father in heaven, give them We remember civilian women, children, and men whose lives are ruined by war or terror. And we especially remember today the ongoing war in Ukraine and pray for everyone caught up in the response to Russia's naked aggression. Father in heaven, give them your peace. We pray for peacemakers and peacekeepers as they work hard to try and keep our world secure and free. Those who place themselves in risk so that others might be protected. Father in heaven, give them your peace. And we remember all who bear the burden and privilege of leadership, political, military and religious asking for gifts of wisdom and resolve in the search for reconciliation and peace. Father in heaven, God of truth and justice, we hold before you those whose memory we cherish and those whose names we will never know, but who are known to you, wherever there is sadness, need or loss. Father in heaven, Lord, as we honour the past, May we put our faith in your future, for you are the source of hope and light, now and forever. Amen. Thank you, Gillian. We close our worship this morning in the words of hymn number 551, In Heavenly Love Abiding.
And now go in peace to remember the past, to live in the present, and to commit the future into the hands of our ever-present and ever-loving God. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you all, now and forevermore. standing as we sing the National Anthem. 